I yeah. only mentioned turtles like twice. I did not even mention manatees. Welcome to Rebalancing Act. We are Kieran Waterhouse and Leslie Ann Santamore, two law grads and soon to be lawyers, and more importantly, friends. We know that climate change is happening and that we have to solve it. And so every second Friday, we come together with you to talk about climate solutions and how we can get there. I want to take you through the water cycle, but not the water cycle in the way you might have been taught it in elementary school. I'm going to add a few steps. You'll get it. First off, let's start simple. Picture a glass of water. I have one sitting next to me right now. You might. You've probably already drank one today. And if not, please do. Hydrate, babes. It's good for you, I promise. Say this glass of water is drank by a pregnant woman. That water enters her body. It does all kinds of things. Like I said, it's healthy. One of the things it'll do is it's going to become part of the liquid that surrounds her child. When that child's born, we even call one of those steps her water breaking. And that's when, you know, we know the baby's coming. When that child's born, they'll drink their mother's milk or maybe formula. That baby will cry, soil a diaper, and those tears will end up in rags, cloths on the mother's clothes. That diaper will end up in the trash. That liquid leaving the baby is going to enter our waste disposal systems, whether it be a landfill, an incinerator, all kinds of different things. And that water is eventually going to end up either going through our plumbing or sewage systems or seeping back into the earth, depending on how it was disposed of. From there, it's entering the water table again or our lakes or rivers before it's being evaporated back into the air into the clouds, where eventually it'll return to Earth. Hail, rain, sleet, snow, the water cycle operates in it all. And from there, it's going to come back to us, whether it be through a well, municipal drinking water, or sticking your tongue out to catch a snowflake, and it enters our bodies again. I want to talk about this kind of extended water cycle. Because it's important that we recognize that we are part of this cycle. The water cycle isn't just something that happens external to us. We are a part of it, and it's a part of us. We can't survive without it. And we're influencing it and impacting it in really big ways. For example, that glass of water. Usually when you get that glass of water, you know it's clean. But we often don't think about where it came from. Does it come from a well where you're directly tapped in to the water table and where you can manage that water 
and you can manage that water within your own household to ensure that it's safe for drinking. Does it go through a municipal drinking water system? Is it part of a river system that's being redirected into an urban center so that it can be accessed? Is, it, is our human access to it impacting its ecosystems and its consistency? What about when that water is in the mother's body? As climate change moves forward, there's going to be all kinds of impacts on human health. Certain types of diseases will become more prevalent in different places. We've talked about before on this podcast the impact of air emissions. Our ability to have safe drinking water is only going to get more important for us and the future generations. When the water is returning to the natural systems, whether it be directly or through a waste disposal system, We can think about the plastics that are involved and how they aren't returning to a natural state. They're ending up in our oceans. They're being incinerated, causing additional emissions. We can think about the water that goes into the manufacturing of the towels, the cloths that might wipe away those babies' tears, or into the diapers themselves. Water going into through plumbing and sewage systems. Again, we can talk about the way we're changing the natural structure of these waterways, the impacts of flooding and water management. When it returns to the water tables, the lakes, the rivers, and oceans, climate change is seeing sea levels rise, changes in oxygen levels in lakes or rivers, changes in the acidification. Climate change is going to bring changes to airstreams, causing drought in certain areas or flooding in others. We are interconnected to our water cycle, just as climate change is. Climate change can intensify the way it's evaporated, how much is evaporated, how quickly it can create dry spots, drought, it can create flooding in other areas because of climate change, because of these things that we've allowed to happen. Warmer air holds more water vapor, which means more water, bigger rainstorms like extreme flooding. And that's not it. That's not the only thing. When areas dry out and become really dry, you've probably seen this before, the dirt becomes real rock hard. And therefore, when all of a sudden there's a lot of water in a big rainstorm, it doesn't actually seep into the ground the way we want it to because the ground's so hard and happens so fast. So much of it runs off the ground into rivers and streams, bringing with it chemical runoff in some cases, but also meaning the ground stays dry and the drought stays. Even more, something I never thought of is snowpack. With warmer weather means less snow, and it can mean more rain. As any Canadian knows, rain makes the snow melt faster. But less snowpack, melting even faster, can mean drier conditions later in the year, because there are some areas that rely on that late melting snow from higher altitudes or colder regions to continue to distribute water through into the year. Over the next couple episodes, we want to be exploring our relationships with water and the water cycle and the relationships of climate change to the water cycle. These these cycles aren't separate. They're so intertwined. And One thing I want to talk about today with Kieran is you're going to hear us talk about climate solutions and water 
and the way we conceptualize water and the way we conceptualize environmentalism in water and why some of these ways we think about these things aren't perfect or aren't, and aren't the most helpful. Before in later episodes, we dive into more specific climate solutions related to water. And so with that, enjoy my conversation with Kieran. So fun. So how are you doing today, Kieran? I am good. I'm doing well. I'm painting my apartment. Um, So we've gotten half of one room done today. And let me tell you, based on the amount of work we did, it feels like a real achievement. I believe it. Painting is not easy. But I feel like something a lot of people I know have done during COVID. Yeah, it's all about, you know, that interior decoration stuff. Yeah, changing up your space. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I have schemes. I've got schemes. Schemes on schemes on schemes. Truly. It's almost overwhelming for me at times. But, you know, I do find like a list of schemes helps. Yeah. Some people have to-do lists. We have lists of schemes. Absolutely. One of our schemes, which was to talk about water today. Yes, it was. So, yeah, let's talk about water. H2O, if you will. It's everywhere. It's, it's in our lakes, it's in our rivers, it's in our taps, it's in our bodies. It's literally everywhere. And you know what? I can't get enough of it. Truly. I mean, I think, what are we by weight? 70% water? Something like that. Although, as I say that, you can have too much water. It, it can be bad for you. Mm-hmm. But, like, emotionally, I can't get enough of it. Yes. It's a free-for-all. <laughs> when we think about water, when we talk about the water cycle, when we think about water in our daily life, what is it you think of, Kieran? Hmm. I guess I think, like, water really is, in so many ways, the fundamental building block of our life. And it's also really something that's sort of hidden. So... I know, like, just from an environmental perspective, I remember reading for the first time this brand that I bought jeans from. They had a low water pair of jeans, and that was the first time that I thought, oh, yeah, it makes sense to me that significant amounts of water would be used in the making of those jeans. And, like, you can really extrapolate that idea to understand how much of the water, you know, when we talk about water use, it's, yes, it's about the showers and it's about the drinking water, but more than that, it's also about industrial processes, everything from making jeans to cooling certain types of nuclear power. Totally. And I think along with that is something weird in the way that, you know, we don't really think of water as ever disappearing. We so often talk about it in terms of cycling, you know, the water cycle we learn about in school. We think about how Whenever it rains, there's more water. We think about rivers and lakes flowing and bringing more water. And when we think about water used in our showers, our taps, or these industrial processes, we always just kind of assume there will be more. Mm-hmm. But that's not totally the case. Absolutely. And I mean, you really do need to take like a, bir- a bird's eye view of it. Something as... It sounds like a very small thing, but it's actually very large. Like, 
We have paved over more of nature than ever before. And that means that our aquifers um, are being replenished less and less just because all of that water doesn't, you know, it can't be absorbed through the asphalt downwards. And, you know, we actually do have technological solutions that make it such that, you know, we could be using better road paving systems that do actually allow water to filter through. But even something like that actually creates a huge impact on the water table. I always just like to picture in the winter when there's that little bit of water that gets into the road and it freezes and it expands and it creates the potholes. <laughs> I like to picture that as nature's revenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of is. I mean, it's just so much yeah. more powerful. And I think, so, talking about water, in a way, it is true that it doesn't really leave us but we keep moving it around like you said if water is not going back into the water table into the aquifers it's not coming back into our wells our drinking water systems and into our taps and it's not only in that way it's being impacted even if you think about how climate change impacts snowfall if there's less snowfall and less snowpack and more rain that comes down in the winter that means that the snowpack will melt faster and it won't be held onto in elevated or colder regions to be distributed over greater time. So it leads to regions that are experiencing more drought and drier areas and water shortages, which is mm-hmm. something it had never really occurred to me before because it's not only what happens to the water once we get it, but it's where are we... How are we changing the ways the water comes to us? That means maybe it won't. I know it's uh it's in I think, you know, for anyone it seems like a scary proposition. It really is. And it's scary to me because it's something I think we don't talk about enough. We've all heard about the push for no single-use plastics. We've all seen the photos of the sea turtles with the straws. We've all seen photos from oil spills and the birds covered in oil and the ocean filled with oil. And that tends to be what we picture and what we talk about when we talk about environmentalism, when we talk about sustainability, and we talk about water. But those types of pollution aren't the only thing that is threatening our water and it's also not unrelated to the climate because well one if we want to be really direct if we're taking less oil out of the ground there's going to be less oil that can go into our water systems for one Mm -hmm. and you could say the same thing about if we're moving away from from oil we'll move away from single-use plastics but at the same time it's also If we're getting more rain, there's going to be more runoff, and more runoff will be bringing in more fertilizers, pesticides, all kinds of industrial chemicals into our waterways. Bigger storms will will mean there's bigger surf, bringing in all different kinds of garbage and litter into our waterways. And so I think we need to get those really as much as there's photogenic, as much as I love turtles and birds, we need to get those 
dramatic images out of our mind. And I think realize that these issues are so much more interconnected than just what we're putting into the water. Does that make sense to you, Kieran? It does. And I think, you know, alongside with the fact that these issues are scary, like the solutions are also accessible, but there just hasn't been the will, I think, and the coordination and the organization, and maybe even on a basic level, as you said, the understanding to elicit those responses, that there's stuff that we can do about this. The fertilizer thing is so interesting because I don't think people realize how you know, really detrimental fertilizer runoff, nitrogen runoff, all of these things is to the habitats. And like, we could fix that, you know, we could, we could manage our fertilizer better and use probably a lot less chemical fertilizer. Because as we've talked about on the podcast before, you know, we have other options. That and like, the more fertilizer that is runoff, the less fertilizer on the farmer's field. And it's not, farmers aren't incentivized to be risking runoff, but it's the way things currently operate that they, we have talked about, they don't have access to the capital to make the investments needed to change the way they farm at this moment. There's a level of, you know, if we aren't able to provide accurate weather predicting and mapping as climate change is taking place and as patterns are changing, it makes it harder for them to predict when to be applying fertilizers in a way that'll help prevent runoff and all of these different things. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I think that is, um, (laughs) it's just fair and true. I remember reading this article about like, there's both wide, like (laughs) rampant phosphorus contamination and a phosphorus shortage because we're not good at managing our phosphorus, which is actually a really essential mineral in many processes and I think you know you can sort of extrapolate that and like a lot of phosphorus contamination exists in water and we need it for water related things and like really it's just about the mismanagement of the water system in really analogous ways um you know if we look at some of the (laughs) I mean because there are no consequences and people think it's uh Sorry, I know that was rhetorical, but I'm going to answer it anyways. Answer it. Answer it. <laughs> Definitely a lack of consequences. People, you know, don't understand because people don't understand resource management, I think. And I even think about some of, you know, some of the really tragic and bad and in unjust things that have happened to First Nations communities in Canada have actually related to the poisoning of the water in those communities. And obviously we know the boil water advisory is still in effect. Like, you know, these issues don't occur in the abstract. They are impacting people's lives negatively every single day. And it's not as if, you know, I think we have all these systems to manage water better. And it's not only do we need them for the future, it's that we need to manage, be managing them for the present as well right now. I think you're really right. And I think water and some other resources and the way that we've just always seen them as infinite. We don't, we never thought about them as something that we needed to manage. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, that is also a Canadian centric point of view. So if you, 
uh, grew up or live in the Middle East, for example, I think people don't ever see water as infinite there, that it's always a resource to be managed. I think about people uh, farming moisture in the desert because that was, you know, you know, the contraptions that you build are like how, you know, how you how you survive or um, if you are crossing a really arid area, it's really about how much water you have left and how much of it you can afford to drink and keep. So, um, you know, it is interesting. I I totally agree with you, Leslie, and I kind of have the same perspective about water. But then I think that that is very much us in Canada and in other, I think, culturally in other parts of the world, it is different. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I probably could have phrased that better because not all, because I do agree it is very Canadian centric. But I think it's also that just that regions all around the world have these resources that we get bad at managing because we think they're infinite. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think for us here, water is a really big one that we do that with. Definitely. Absolutely. I know there is something, there's definitely an inverse correlation between the affinity of a resource and how well we're currently managing it, probably. Karen, we've talked a little bit about how we think about water and how we interact with water, both personally and as, like, a society. But water is also such a big thing that there's so many different types of climate solutions that can involve water. You know, just some of the big ones, hydroelectricity, offshore wind power, mm-hmm. tidal power. What others do you, can you think of? Like, Ooh. I kind of love the way it could just be such a helpful thing in battling climate change. So I'm going to make an analogy, and I think that the direct air capture of water solutions is desalination technology. It's like one of those things that we kind of in some ways wish we didn't have to have because like, we did wish that droughts didn't exist and won't continue to exist, but they will. And there are several leaders in desalination technology. It is not, it is in many ways, I think, a very technocratic and imperfect solution in the way that direct air capture is. And also for many, you know, in many instances, it's relatively in its infancy and it's like relatively resource intensive and inefficient, also like direct air capture. But also an exciting, promising, and likely necessary addition to the arsenal of climate technologies that we have. So I know that there are some leaders in that. I know that Israel is one leader, but there are others. And that is something that I'm excited to see grow further because, I mean, if you can even to some extent harness the seawater, like that makes a huge difference in terms of freshwater availability. Totally. I think That's one I hadn't really thought of. And I think the other side of that is just, is one of those things that can be a win-win because people pay a lot of money for expensive sea salt. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. They really do. I say people, I mean me sometimes when I'm in a mood (laughs) and I have internet access. As you should. Yeah. And it's in, go. I was just going to say another one was like also rain barrels. I know we mentioned this briefly, but like I think that rainwater capture capture systems are awesome. Like there are ways to make the best use of the rainwater we have available. 
And, you know, those are pretty sweet. And it's kind of like, you know, maybe you're walking through your neighborhood and one of your neighbors has solar panels and you're like intrigued by that. You're like, maybe I want that for myself too, but like I need to find out more. And, you know, if you, one year later in this optimistic example, 10 to 20 of your neighbors now have solar panels on the roofs, you're like, oh, okay, sweet. Like, you know want to be a trendsetter, don't want to fall behind, got to get on board. I kind of feel like actually rainwater catchment systems are going to be this, but the next generation. I think you're right. I love rainwater catching systems. And the other thing is that I think there's something that was kind of like trendy and popular, but then was considered lame. And I really want to bring them back. I know. Big environment. Just like making us like making awesome environmental solutions seem lame when you know what they actually are. And the tech bros should love this. They are efficient. They are efficient systems. We're using our resources efficiently. Absolutely, we are. I love that efficiency. And also, I just love a good rain barrel. I don't know why, but there's something about them I really do enjoy. Oh, yeah. You know, society loves efficiency. Therefore, society should also love rain barrels. Argument over. Then literally just putting out a container for the world to fill with rain on your behalf. Truly. Truly, truly, truly. You don't have to do anything. I know. It's a good time. It's going to be a good time. If you get a rain barrel, it's going to be a good time. I just never put away my watering can because if you leave it out long enough, it refills itself. Uh, Truly beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) but i also want to be clear that like climate change and water issues aren't always such an easy win-win together there are sometimes climate solutions and energy solutions that have negative impacts to our water systems and i think we have to really think carefully about how we want to navigate those intersections absolutely a big one is hydroelectricity and the impact it has on ecosystems it can have on methylmercury levels, the impacts it can have on flooding, and also even, you know, offshore wind farms, their impact on habitat and migratory bird and aquatic animal patterns. All of these different things don't necessarily... They aren't the win-wins we love to talk about here. They aren't necessarily all contributing to a, to a good life in every way. And I think those are intersections that we really have to think carefully about in a way that we don't encounter in some of the other climate solutions we've talked about before. Absolutely. This is why we need to be talking about these things more, because, like, we need a rich discourse, So much of, you know, as we say time in, time out on this podcast, and the reason why this podcast has more than one episode is because it takes a lot of solutions to climate change, and solutions have to be tailored to an area, and you really do have to weigh the costs and benefits and also fairly engage all the stakeholders. Totally. Our discourse around these issues, yeah, it allows people to form an opinion on things that can have so many different right opinions Mm -hmm. or right answers, I guess is the better word. 
There's no one answer for everywhere when it comes to these issues. And so the more people we can bring together to talk about them, the more places we can find where these solutions are the right solution for that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Humans are a creative bunch. We are. I read this article and I mean, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to start a podcast with Leslie Ann is because I really disliked a lot of the media around climate change. So we thought, why not create our own? But beyond (laughs) that, I remember reading a specific article and it was this woman trying to describe conserving water at like an end use end user stage strategy so she said oh okay like this is how much water i'd hypothetically need to be conserving a day how do i do that and she just like went through these true like trials and tribulations in trying to conserve water from her like non-water efficient tap her non-water efficient shower you know Maybe she didn't have options for clothes that were from companies that were efficient with their water, etc. Stuff like that. And at the end, she was like, oh, so maybe life will just suck. And my takeaway (laughs) from that article was like, no, the conclusion should be that, like, we need better systems to manage water because, like, then you can, you know, the new next generation of water efficient showerheads aren't defined mist. Like, they're very cool technologies. And I think you know, taking that approach probably makes a less good clickbaity article, but it actually makes for a better life. You're totally right. And it's it's the carbon footprint problem. It is. There are systemic issues at hand. There's only so much we can do about. And every time I say carbon footprint today, for some reason, I picture it as a giant Yeti footprint. (laughs) And like, you know, when they fill it, with the plaster, so they can take a print of it. Mm-hmm. That's my mental image of a carbon footprint today. I just thought you should know. Excellent. I am so glad that I do. Thank you, Leslie Ann. <laughs> and I think that's as good a place as any, Karen, to uh, end our conversation for today, because you know I could go on and on forever about water. I only mentioned turtles, like, twice. I did not even mention manatees. Oh, I wish. Give them a shout-out. I mean, I am recording this next to my two manatee stuffed animals. Yes. They are shouted out appropriately. Yes. I will will talk to you in two weeks, Leslie Ann. Okay, but, like, you'll talk to me and everyone listening in two weeks, but, like, hopefully just me on a personal level sooner. Oh, no. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rebalancing Act. You can find us every second Friday here talking climate solutions. You can also find us on Instagram at Rebalancing Act or Twitter at Rebalancing Act underscore. Have questions? Send them our way. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, drink your water. I'm going to briefly edit this out, but, um,